0: as we get to the point, let's have a moment of prayer and then we will get into the scriptures together Lord, we thank you so much for times like this where we can come together. Lord God, I pray for each one of the boys and girls who just went next door into Super Church. Lord I pray that they would hear the gospel clearly today Lord in a way that they can understand your love and your grace and your forgiveness that you extend so freely to them God, I thank you for uh, the children's ministry and student ministry leaders that we have in investing in the next generation. God, I pray that during our time together today, that we would receive the fresh breath that you have for us in your scriptures. God, that you would convict our hearts, that you bring us to change that would glorify Jesus today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. A few months ago, I read a book called, This Is Our Time by a man named Trevin Wax. Trevin actually wrote the book just down the road here in a condo in Perito Key, and he writes regularly for the Gospel Coalition. You may have seen some of his articles around, but Trevin was talking about a concept called progressive individualism. That means that we are the answers to all of our problems, that if we dig down deep enough, we will find the answer. Now, if we were to look into our culture over the last several years, we would see a focus on the individual rather than a group. Now, there are many benefits to that, but certainly if I were to tell you a few years ago that someone would be making a living by curating the music playlist that you listen to, you'd tell me that I was crazy right? There's computer algorithms that do that, but there's also people. And the focus is so much on you as an individual that we may uh, have totally different experiences from media than people that are right next to us. Now, if we were to go back 10, 15, even 20 years, we would see that everyone typically watched the same shows. There's an explosion of availability in subjects that we expose ourselves to, and typically people could come together and have a conversation about those, but now it's a little bit harder. Our subdivisions are being built today without sidewalks at the point that we close our garages as soon as we get home. We don't spend time with our neighbor's Anymore, And the concept of living in community is becoming countercultural in and of itself. But if we look into the life that Jesus calls us into, we see a life of humility and a life that is based around surrounding ourselves in community with people, both people that are in Christ and people that are lost so that we can share the love of Christ with them. In a world that is so self-centered, whenever we live according to the plan that Jesus gives us, people take notice. Just a few weeks ago, there was a court case that was that was going around Facebook and Twitter, and there was a clip of this young man who lost his brother and a was his brother was killed by a police officer named Amber Geyer. She went into the wrong apartment and ended up taking the life. Of this man's brother and I want to read you some words that he said in this case From the witness stand he said you'll never know what you've taken from us I think you know that But I just hope that you go to god with all the guilt all the bad things that you've done in the past All of us may have done something that we're not supposed to do And if you're truly sorry, I forgive you And I know that if you go to god and ask him he'll forgive you And I love you just like anyone else. I personally want the best for you. And I wasn't going to say this in front of my family, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want what's best for you because the best thing that you can do is give your life to Christ. That'd be the best thing that you can do. Again, I love you as a person. I don't wish anything bad on you. And then he did something remarkable he stood up from his seat in the witness stand and he asked the judge, Can I go give her a hug? And he walked around and he hugged this woman in front of a misty-eyed courtroom as a display of the change that happened in his heart from belonging to Jesus. When we are obedient in the, if you love me, you'll obey my commands kind of obedience that Jesus commands of us, it is different and it stands out and people take notice. We're able to forgive someone of something that can't be taken back But man, aren't we so tempted to hang on to something that happened at a family Christmas 10, 15 years ago and just let it harbor in our hearts and drive division into our families and into our church family and into our friendships? Whenever Jesus is saying you are to forgive as you have been forgiven, but we hang on to the little things. I know none of us can relate to this today, but every one of us can relate to this because we are so tempted to judge and to hold grudges. But when we're obedient to what God has called us to do, the world listens. Today, we're going to be picking up in Colossians chapter three. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and flip over there. I know last week we took a little bit of a detour out of our study through the book of Colossians, but we're getting right back into the midst of Paul's letter today. And we're transitioning into the practical walk of the believer. Paul has given us a lot of, of ways that we are to die to ourselves, but he's about to start talking about the way that we should live. And this is practical application for every one of us. We're we're to put to death, we're to put to death the things that are of the world, and we don't walk in those ways. But instead, we are born in a newness of life to follow Christ. This is where the rubber meets the road. Paul gives us a list of commands and attitudes and is very, very clear in the way that we are to behave as followers of Jesus. The Christian life is not about death. It is about life. And here Paul lays it out for us. Verses 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, and be thankful let the word of christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to god and whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks to god the father through him and may god add his blessings to the reading of his word the imperative words in this text is very clear that we are to be humble and we are to focus on others this concept of putting on is an idea of getting ready of preparing for battle, of preparing for our day-to-day life, because we are in a spiritual war zone, but the lie sneaks in that we can compartmentalize everything, and we can put our life into boxes, and we can be Christians at church, or we can be Christians in our small groups, but outside of that, we can live just like we used to be and make a difference when that is far from the truth of the Word of God. Paul tells us we see three things in the text. And the first is that we see a new self. What is a new self? How can we have a new self? Well, in John chapter three, Nicodemus approaches Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. That was a confusing concept for Nicodemus. He thought Jesus was speaking literally and he he was talking about us literally dying to ourselves and living for God and living in his ways. Every aspect of our life changes whenever we come to the cross. Whenever we humble ourselves to say, I am no longer in control but I'm going to let Jesus get in the driver's seat. I'm going to remove myself from this. I'm going to say that I understand I'm not in charge of my own life, but he is instead. And Paul gives us a list of behaviors that we can exhibit to show that this is happening, to show our witness of Jesus to the people around us. We put on compassionate hearts. Our hearts are now geared towards others rather than towards ourselves. Remember, we live in such an individualistic society that the pursuit of happiness is about the only thing that we can come up with. But that is far from the gospel and that's far from the command that Jesus gives. Jesus was accused of many things in his ministry and compassion was definitely one of them. It didn't matter what race someone was. It didn't matter what gender someone was. It didn't matter what socioeconomic standing the person had. It didn't matter what their beliefs are. And if you don't believe me, I'm about to prove it to you. Jesus approached us, as a Jew, approached a Samaritan woman at a well who he had no business talking to in the societal norms, but he saw her for who she was. And he says, let me extend this living water to you. He approaches a Roman, a Roman centurion, approaches him and says, Jesus, my servant at home is ill. And I know that if you say the word, you will heal him. And Jesus doesn't look at him and say, oh, get out of here. You're a Roman. I shouldn't be dealing with you. You should be doing something else. No, Jesus looks at him with compassion and says, in all of Judea, I haven't seen faith like this. Your servant is healed. And in that moment, Jesus heals his servant. When the people would walk past the poor, Jesus would stop and he would minister to them. See, the cross has a level playing field for everyone. It says, for God so loved the world, not for God so loved someone that looks and acts like you and gets their act together first. There's a level playing field, so we are to have compassionate hearts towards people around us. The most perfect example of Jesus's compassion, to me at least, is in John chapter 17 the high priestly prayer, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He knows that the cross is right around the corner and he's praying, Lord, if it is at all possible, let this cup pass from me. And then he moves right on. Because if we were to go and we were to open up John 17 and read all of the words of Jesus, the focus of his prayer is not on himself, but it's on the disciples. It's on the people who are going to hear about what Jesus is going to do through the disciples, which means Jesus is in the garden looking the cross in the face, and he's praying for you. He's praying for the people who would come behind him and hear the good news that he has conquered death, that God's relationship with mankind can be restored through his blood. Even looking death in the face, Jesus had compassion. And then we see kindness and humility, and I love the way N.T. Wright Talks about these ideas. He says, Kindness is a Christ like attitude towards others. Humility is a Christ like attitude towards oneself. Those are important concepts that we need to have, that we display kindness to people, but we remain humble. And humility is not this self-deprecating concept that we have, but it's understanding that all of life does not revolve around us, but rather that God invites us to be a small part of his redemptive story for mankind. God is offering for us to be a small part of the greatest story ever told. And I would much rather be a small part of the greatest story than the star of a story that nobody wants to hear. And God offers that to us and we are able to walk with him in humility because life is not about us. It is about him. We're to live meekly in meekness. Jesus said, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. But that is a bad word today because being meek means to submit to someone. And our society and our culture says, you be you, you do your own thing. You find your own way. I'm not positive enough to be the thing that God's called me to be because he says, you are chosen, you are favored, you are forgiven. And I'm so much harder on myself. So I'd much rather submit to God's plan for my life because it is so much better than my own. And he says the same to you. We are to be patient and bear with one another. And you may have the same thought that I had about bearing one another. One, that seems like the bare minimum that we can do. And two, that seems really hard, right? This is a concept of struggling, but it's also a minimum. Douglas Moose says that while not requiring the greatest display of Christian kindness and patience, bearing with one another is nevertheless the first and necessary step in establishing community The demand acknowledges that every Christian fellowship is made up of all kinds of people and that while we accordingly sometimes find ourselves in close fellowship with people who are different than we are for the sake of maintaining community, we sometimes have to put up with people with whom we would not normally choose to associate, which means we have to die to ourselves for the sake of the glory of God because it's worth it and everyone has a story, and Jesus died for everyone in this room and everyone that you come in contact with. Bearing with one another and complaints and hardship are certainly concepts that we can all understand. There are certainly ideas that we, you may even be dealing with it in the midst of it right now, of bearing with someone. It is not hard for us to hold grudges. It's not hard for us to be hurt. And hurt people hurt people, but if we are forgiven by God, we know the extent of that forgiveness, and we should be willing to then in turn forgive others. When we forgive one another, we're doing what Jesus commanded us to do. And when we hold something against our brother or sister in Christ, Jesus strongly commands us, All right, this is countercultural to refrain from worshiping him until we get that right. And when he writes this, he's writing to a group of people that go to the synagogue every single day. So in the context of what Jesus is writing, he's saying, don't let the sun go down on your anger, go and make it right. For us, if we were to even just say, hey, we're going to let this play into our culture, get it right by the next week. Man, if we're going to be honest, a lot of us don't even do that. Because we are hurt. But when we find our peace in Jesus, when we are forgiving one another as we have been forgiven, not only are we being obedient to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, but we are making a witness to the people around us for his name's sake. Jesus gives us even a further example of forgiving one another. It's not even just for people that we like or for our families, but for our enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48 says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And I don't know about you, but the concept of perfection is very scary to me. That we're to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect but Jesus is really saying I've done the hard work I have lifted the thing that you cannot lift I have set you free and through the power of the Spirit that lives in you you can forgive John thirteen thirty-five, one of my favorite verses in the scriptures it doesn't say all the world will know by the way that you hold one another accountable it says, all the world will know by the way that you love one another. Because love is a counter cultural, real love, okay? Not. I love this snack, or I love my friend, but I'm going to let them go do whatever it is that they want to do that's outside of the will of God. But real love that is sacrificial, that puts other people before ourselves, is so countercultural and is so rare that Jesus himself says, all the world will know by the way that you love one another. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to go up to Washington, D.C. for a couple days um, It was a really interesting trip. I'd never been to the city before and, you know, saw the Smithsonian's and all of the museums and everything, but the one that really stuck out the most to me was the Holocaust Museum. Um, I had not, no fault to my teachers, I probably was just not paying attention as a 12-year-old, but I didn't understand the magnitude of what happened. I didn't understand the evil that could come from humans that you see in these massive images that are the size of the wall in the back of the room. I didn't understand that people were dying at such a rapid rate because of a leader that could be so evil. And I really struggled with that concept. And I came home, and the next year, in one of my classes, we were assigned a book called *The Hiding Place* that was written by a lady named Corrie Ten Boom. And man, her faith in this darkness was a light. And she traveled around and she spoke in some churches and and one of them, she was talking about forgiveness. She was talking about this subject. And at the end of it, the SS officer, or SS guard at the shower room from her concentration camp walked up to her at the end of this church service and stood and looked her in the face. And in that moment, All of the emotion, all of the trauma, all of the images that were just graven in her mind were right in front of her face embodied in this individual. And he walks up and he asks for forgiveness. Do you think that this moment was difficult for her? We make mountains out of really small issues in our own lives, but this woman had to look this man in the eye and she had to stop and she wrote in her book, I sat there and I couldn't stretch my hand out to him. But then I prayed, Lord, I need your forgiveness in this moment. I need your strength. And then she said something incredible happened. She said she felt it from her shoulder to her arm. She reaches out. And a strength that only God could give her. And she shakes this man's hand. And at the end of this passage, she says, into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed. So I discovered it's not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that this world's healing hinges, but on his. And we can find rest in the fact that we have this power in the spirit of God that lives in us. The same one that lived in her, the same one that Jesus said is the helper that is going to come. So you may have come into this room today and you may have a grudge that you have been holding on to for years and God is saying to you in this moment, enough is enough. I don't care if you need to get up and leave the room and call somebody and make something right. We are to be obedient to what God is calling us to do. Maybe the father's saying to you today, have I not forgiven you for so much more than the thing that you're hanging on to? Because if that is us, then right now we're just like the the servant that Jesus talks about in Matthew 18, who is forgiven of a debt that he could never repay in his entire life. And whenever the master calls him and says, it's time for your debt to be paid, he goes up, he falls on his knees in front of the master, and he asks for forgiveness, and the master allows him to go and have his debt taken away. But instead of going back and forgiving others, he goes and finds someone who owes him just a couple days wages, and he bears down on him. He says, no, you will pay your debt. And ultimately, that man was brought back to the master. The one who had been forgiven was thrown into jail because he failed to show that forgiveness that was extended to him. As the Lord forgives, we are to forgive others. And I don't know about you, but I know what's in my heart. I know the hatred that I've had towards people. I know the times where my heart has just not been right in a moment and I may have said something to someone that was not right. I know the filth that's in my own heart. And Jesus says, I forgive you. Why are you going to hold that against everyone else? We put on love. The crown jewel that holds all of this together is love that can only be found through what Jesus did for us. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the scandalous part of this forgiveness. We're to forgive as God has forgiven us, but God didn't wait for us to get it right, to forgive us, to extend that forgiveness. While we were still sinners, he sent Jesus to die for us. As Jesus is hanging on the cross in a perfect moment of love, as he is being spat on and mocked, he looks out and says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And this is the radical obedience that God is calling us to, that we extend forgiveness to people around us. While we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were enemies, Jesus died for us in a way that a friend wouldn't even do. If we know the joy of forgiveness and grace, we should be willing to extend that to others around us. Have you received grace today? Have you received forgiveness? Romans 13, Paul gives this command after completing another list, just like in chapter 3, verse 5, and chapter 3, verse 8. But he says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is prob- I hope this is not a secret to you, but even whenever we die to ourselves, we're raised to walk in newness of life with Jesus, there's still temptations that we face. There's still times that we're tempted to treat people in a certain way because we're going to feel better about it. We die to ourselves because our way leads to death. Proverbs 14 tells us that there is a way that seems right unto man that leads to death, but through the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, we can be brought into this right relationship with God. We don't have to look far for us to see people falling into temptation. We don't have to look far to see people hold grudges. We don't have to see, look far to see people become prideful. We may even see it in ourselves. But in this moment, Jesus is saying, lay it down at the foot of the cross. It becomes revolutionary whenever we're kind Something that should be just a part of our human nature to see other people that are created by the same God that we are. But when we're humble without an agenda to advance ourselves, when we show compassion to the least of these, whenever we put on love, whenever we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, it binds everything together, which leads us to a new peace in verse 15 says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your heart to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Have you ever experienced peace? I'm talking peace that like doesn't make sense in the moment. It may have, you may have lost a loved one and you're just, you know, somehow I'm okay. I don't know how that is, but this is a weird moment. When we experience peace, we understand life in the way that God intended it to be. When we experience peace, we understand that it's not just about our 401ks or our house or our car or where we're going to be in five or ten years. But we understand that we are in a place that is going to spend eternity with God, and everything else seems to fail in comparison to that. So, this peace that we have of Christ is not just a good feeling that we have, but it's a place of security that Jesus extends to us through the cross. Warren Wearsby says that when a Christian loses the peace of God, he begins to go off in directions that are out of the will of God. When we lose our place of security, we feel like we have to make things happen. When you lose a job and you don't know where that next paycheck is coming from, you may try to take things into your own hands and make something happen. This is the idea of security that we're talking about. When Jordan and I were in premarital counseling, one of the concepts that we were talking about was the the necessary piece of security into a marriage. Something that a relationship is built on, something that you can always lean into, and it's a safe place for you to be. And Jesus offers that to us through the cross. But whenever we start to allow our old self to sneak back in and allow Satan to tell us lies about where our place of security goes, we are so willing to move past our place of security and try to make things happen to make ourselves feel better. Wearsby makes a valid and distinctive point. When we take our eyes off of the cross, you are just like Peter walking on the water. Because check this out, he's walking, he's looking around, he sees the wind, he sees the waves. He he realizes, I'm out of the boat, I'm out of the safe place. The threats that he's seeing are real, they're there. But it's only when he takes his eyes off of Jesus that he starts to fall. It's only whenever he takes his eyes off of the one who speaks and the wind and the waves listens that he falls The peace of God is our security. And I hope that you have that security today. Paul's making a deeper point that we, this is not just a peace that we experience, but it's a peace that rules in our heart. When peace rules, our priorities are in check. When peace rules, we're making little of ourselves and much of Jesus. We're being kind. We're showing compassion. This is not just a feeling, but it is a confidence in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for us. And we know that we are eternally secure because of what he has done on our behalf. And this piece is extended as a call into the body, as Paul says in verse 15, that you are called into one body and be thankful. We are called to live life communally. We come into a corporate gathering like this where we are encouraged each week when we are reminded to point to the cross in everything. Believers who are full of gratitude to God for this calling finds it easier to fellowship with other believers because the spirit in us is alive and is well. When we are outside of the peace of God, we are certain to bring discord into the family of God because when we are outside of this place of security, pride reigns and pride goes before the fall. Pastor Joe was reading a prayer that King David had after his great sin with Bathsheba and sending Uriah off into battle. And we were talking about this on Wednesday night with our students that David became the very person that he was running from. David became just like Saul, the one who was hunting him down in this moment because this pride that he had arrived came into his heart. And when he was no longer leaning on the peace of God in his life, he started reaching out and making things happen. And that led to a major blot on his record. Let us stay focused on the cross of Jesus. Verses 16 and 17 shows us a new lifestyle. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The scriptures change us. The scriptures change us. If I can be honest and confess something to you for a minute a few years ago, uh, one of my pastor friends called me and said, hey, um, I just you know kind of realized that I wasn't in the scriptures enough. I was doing a lot of sermon prep, but I wasn't in the scripture for me. And I was just wondering if you wanted to read the Bible with me this year. And I said, you know, okay, sure, Scott, that sounds great. And uh, this, something very basic happened that we would read scripture for five days a week. We would get together and we would talk about it. If you were just in a foundations group that just finished up this year, you experienced the exact same thing that this was. It was just opening up the scriptures every day. And what I started to realize is on days that I didn't get into the scripture, it started to feel like I had missed a meal. I'm missing something. Something's not right here. And later on, if I missed several days in a row, I started to realize, man, my attitude's starting to slip man, I'm starting to worry a lot more about me than I am about the God that I'm served, That I'm supposed to be serving. When Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he means we have to dig into this food, this spiritual nourishment that God has so graciously given to us. This is the most important book that you'll ever have in your life because God meant it for you to reveal himself to you. And he is beautiful. And Paul is making a bold claim that when we spend time in the true and the living word of God, we cannot be the same. And I believe that. I've seen it in my own life. But Paul gives a call to encouragement and accountability in the life of a believer. Remember it says teaching and admonishing one another. Yes, it means encouraging. Yes, it means edifying. But it also means correcting and wisdom. And when we are right with God and a fellow believer comes beside us and says, Hey, brother, there's something you're missing here. We're so much more willing to receive that and to grow from it and become more like Christ. Paul is urging the church to keep the message of Christ center at their gatherings and in the relationships of people in the church we see them coming together and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and rejoicing because of what Jesus has done for them on the cross. Now we could come together and we could sing a lot of songs that may make us feel good. But when we sing about what Jesus has done for us, there's just something that's different about it. Because there's nothing as great as what Jesus has done for us. Verse 17 tells us that we should do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This doesn't simply mean uttering the name of Jesus like some of us may do at the end of a prayer. But whenever we're saying that, we're saying in the reputation of Jesus, I'm going to do all things which means this concept of putting on kindness and humility and putting on the Lord Jesus, as he says in Romans, that we are choosing to live in the reputation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, of the King of kings. We're going to behave like he does. We're going to think in our, in our circumstances, how would Jesus respond to this? What would Jesus be doing in this moment? And we're living in his reputation so that people around us see the salt and the light that the Lord has to offer to them. Your entire life is changed by Jesus. We can't compartmentalize and put into boxes our life apart from him if we have been saved by his grace. It's not just that we're believers on Sunday or whenever your connect group meets or whenever it is that you have a good day. But even on the bad days, we're followers of Jesus. Even when we're upset, we're followers of Jesus. We're doing everything in the reputation of the Son of God.